2: This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome once again to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today is the Australian writer Pete Malicki who, despite having spent most of his uh, professional life in the public sector working for the New South Wales government, has also carved out a niche for himself as one of the world's most enthusiastic proponents of the art of monologue. Having written hundreds and having clocked up thousands of performances of his work, not just with monologues, but also with short plays and full-length works over dozens of countries, and receiving a hall of many, many awards for it. His response to COVID has been to found the World Monologue Games, an international uh, competition involving 3,000 actors who registered to take part, and a judging panel which included yours truly. He also runs the Arts Business Academy, and has a very singular approach to the role of business within the arts, and turning the arts into business. We sat down so that he could discuss with me from his home in Sydney, his views on life, career, and how to make the most out of being a creative. Pete, tell us about your background. Were the arts a major influence in your formative years?
0: Not really in my formative years, Paddy. I mean, I was, I was really interested in writing and, and, and novels, particularly fantasy, when I was a teenager. I moved into theatre quite young um, after having written a few novels, and then a friend sent me a writing competition, a playwriting competition, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll give that a go. I, I remember asking my dad, um, hey, dad, do we have any plays in the house? Because I didn't know what the formatting looked like. And um, of course I fluked a win of the competition. So that gave me a a season of production and a a bit of a taste for theatre. I continued writing novels after that, but didn't really get back into it for, for some years. But um, yeah, interestingly enough, I even now after having run a major festival and, and many other things in the creative industries feel like a bit of an outsider. I feel like I don't really represent, the average kind of theatre person, and um, I'm I'm more of a like common common man who just happens to have done a lot of productions.
2: Um, have you you've always worked on the writing side of it, or do you perform as well?
0: Or? I'm not an actor, but I've done pretty much everything else. Um, so yeah, like writing used to be my principal thing, but then I got into directing. I ran a festival called Short and Sweet, which in Sydney is the largest 10 minute play festival in the world. We would produce 160 plays in a season. So it's a pretty immense event. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and then I started to do a little bit of directing and then I started to do a little bit of teaching and everything just layered on to <laughs> everything that came before it. Uh,
2: did you, I think you probably touched on this slightly, but um did you at any point undertake a sort of formal training in in writing or?
0: No, no, I've never, I've never formally trained in anything in the creative industries. um, Interestingly enough, uh, because I've, I've been teaching for over a decade and um, I guess I, I reverse engineered the process. So I knew from having, you know, read, read plays and, and watched some plays and then writing and getting more and more and more involved. I learned more and more and things about it. And then I started to, to break it down in my own way. And, um, I guess like a lot of people in the creative industries came up with my own spin on how the process should work. And, um, like, it sounds funny coming from a creative, but I'm a very science-minded person. So I'm I'm all about um, you know double-blind testing and repeatability and 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 that kind of stuff. So I try to bring that mindset into what what I teach, and and I think it's what's really interesting is that there's a lot more objectivity than we realise when it comes to creative things. I, I think the process of acting, there are, there are some things which are, of course, just, you know, creative choices, but then there are some some skills which are, you know, like, particularly use of voice, for example, um, that, are, that are really, you know, they're, they're really quite concrete and um, Uh, writing's the same like you can you can at the end of the day you can write about everything everything and anything but you know that there there are formal structures and there's a whole lot of theories and concepts that you can um use as a basis so yeah interesting stuff
2: (laughs) and in terms of the 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 writing that you do um those that that know your name may well most probably associate you first and foremost with the art of the monologue what is it that draws you to that form as, as a writer and uh, what do you get out of watching monologues whether they're your own or, or, or someone else's
0: mm. it's an interesting question i i'll tell you how i how i first got into that i um i'd written a short story bit a bit of short fiction and then um and uh, en- entered it into a competition and didn't go very far with it and and then um, I'd seen the, the concept of a monologue a few times and I was like, well, look, I've got this short story. All I need to do is sort of make a few small adaptations and, and then it'll work. But I couldn't understand without having gone through the process, why would a monologue work? It's just like the, you know, the, what we often think of the, the feature of theatre is that it's the interaction, the live interaction of two or more people Reacting to each other and and you know playing against each other on stage. So how can one person do that? How does that work? And um, the the performance was really powerful, um, and and it went really well, and the audience seemed to love it. So I just got really interested in the art form and and started to do more and more and more of it. And um, it it's as much about business as it is about creativity for me. So. I've found a niche as a monologue writer. Um, there aren't that many writers who specialise in monologues. There, there are, of course, plenty of writers who've written them, um, particularly if you're thinking more around the ten-minute mark, the five, ten-minute mark, because um, lots of people write audition scripts, obviously, but, but where I sort of specialise was the five to ten-minute monologues, and um, there, there's a real market for that stuff. And so for me, it was pursuing something where I'd have a really good chance of getting my work produced because there are a lot of people out there looking for material and struggling to find it. Um, But yeah, as time went on, I I just, I I found the format really interesting. And um, it's just something about a single performer. If they're doing a bad job, it's excruciating. If they're doing a good good job it's kind of something else it, it, you know the, the, the bell curves quite different for for monologue performers and and the good ones are just amazing
2: there is a tremendous intimacy to watching a, a particularly powerful monologue I mean I think certainly um, certainly over here it's been um, uh, taken to the hearts of often some of our sort of major TV producers where it's a, a An interesting way to add a new spin into a long-running series. Um, I mean, I think of you know the one of the most heavily awarded episodes of of EastEnders, which has been running here for thirty-five years. is where they had their longest-running character after her husband's death, doing an entire episode just one set, thirty minutes, um, talking to him in the ether, basically, and, and um. So yeah, no, I entirely get that, and I also entirely get the fact that it can be excruciating to watch. I mean, it's lying <laughs> on their ass. It's like watching bad stand-up. But um, exactly, you have beyond the monologues, though you have a, uh, you've already touched on it, a long association with um, a short-form theatre, um, and have, as you said, been several times festival director of short and sweet Sydney. Um, does Short form theatre for you intrinsically have something that long form theatre does not beyond less time.
0: Wouldn't say I wouldn't I wouldn't really say that to be honest. It, it, it is a different format and I think the 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 advantage that short form theatre has, it's just a different kind of commitment to a new theater goer. If you have not you're not really a theater person. And look, I mean, the markets are different all around the world, but Sydney, where I am, it's a pretty pathetic market for theatre. just, it's not something that people tend to do. We have a couple of mainstream companies and they do well, and then just most of the industry struggles here. So I think for people who are going and having their first theatre experience, um, I think short form theatre is, it's, it's a lot more digestible. It's, 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 it's over quite quickly. So if it's not great, you're only sitting through 10 minutes. And even if the next one not, is not great, it's still something different. So you still get to go, Oh, okay, well, like what's going to go, what's going to happen now. So even 10 week short plays, it's still more interesting than one two hour <laughs> marathon. <laughs> um, so, so to me, I think that's the biggest difference is that it, it allows it allows your new audience members to to kind of get into the in, into the platform of theatre a, a bit more um, tenderly. That said, if it's a great long length long you know full length play, then you know any, anyone can in, enjoy and appreciate that. Um, so so I guess it's just a bit more likely to have. Um, some variety that uh, you know even even again even if um, a a few of the pieces aren't all that good it's it's still going to have something for everyone and um, yeah I I mean I'm not I'm not particularly obsessed with the short form at all like I I have written full-length work and and in some ways I prefer that because you know it's a you get a lot more time to 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 deal with the the subject matter that you're trying to approach. Um, 10 minutes doesn't give you very long to develop characters, for example. And maybe that's another reason why I gravitate towards monologues because it is so much easier to do character development in a monologue. You don't have to show two people interacting and that's how you expose who the character is. You quite simply have one character talking and if you wanna jump ahead in time, the character just says, oh, and then three days later, blah, 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 just like a a narrative fiction so yeah that, that that's probably part of the appeal the the ability to to really um um draw out characters much more quickly and simply
2: the yeah i mean it it is i've i've written for short form festivals in the past and i've i've um you know been to see a lot and and it's um and <laughs> I, you know, I agree with that it's quite often it is it is like the it is like the opal mine, isn't it? You have to churn through quite a lot of debt before you, you, you find the, the couple of gems within it. But that's as it should be, I think, really. I mean, it's a test ground as much um, you, as anything else. You write prolifically. I mean, in your bio, you chalk up a thousand-plus performances of your work across num- countries, numbering well and mm. goes with a, a large hall of awards. Uh, what informs the subjects that you want to write about?
0: Oh, it, it just—it's always different. Um, I don't like to write about the same thing twice. There's not—there's not a particular subject matter that I am passionate about as a writer. Um, you know, like I have worked for environmental organisations for fifteen years. I'm—I'm I'm a passionate environmentalist, but I—I've I've barely written anything that you know. Sometimes environmental undertones, but it's just not as a writer. I don't feel the need to try to use the platform of theatre to, to pass that message around. Um, so I, I tend to draw my inspiration from just all, all sources imaginable. Whether it's some crazy idea that pops into my head at 3am or I'm reading a book or, or watching a TV show or walking down the street and, and seeing some interaction, um, yeah, just being really open-minded towards the sources of inspiration keeps the variety coming through because i do like to have a pretty broad spread of subject matter covered and and i also really like the idea of um of putting uh, like using a character who doesn't reflect my own beliefs and values i think that's um i think it's an important thing to do as well to not just use your writing as an echo chamber for your own uh, morals and to sometimes create characters who might be The opposite or somewhere in the middle of what you believe in, Um, particularly when you're writing things like monologues uh, or audition monologues, which are tools for actors, uh, particularly a short monologue, that really is a tool. It's enabling actors to demonstrate their range and hopefully win roles. It's interesting you should say that
2: because I I was
0: going to ask about
2: Some of your short plays, you know, I sort of went through some of these as well. <laughs> um, so the, the likes of uh, Feminocracy, Breast Pummel. <laughs> How to pick up chicks and score baby. The subject matter and the handling does sort of drift into the uh, skating on thin ice with sharp blades territory. Um, I was going to ask whether you would say that your style when addressing gender politics is is a, a bit unreconstructed, but perhaps you already answered <laughs> in your approach about that. Uh,
0: yeah, look, there's, there's some... I, I find that to be wildly fun and that's it. I'm not trying to make a statement with uh, So, so Patty, you mentioned breast pun ever. It's a play about a condom and a tampon and then they uh, meet the cock a hybrid penis vagina. And it's just pun after pun after pun. It's just, like that. That's super juvenile. And I wouldn't say I'm proud of that. I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> um but, but, yeah, look, I mean, there, 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 I suppose there are some common um, common themes across my writing. I, I mean, you know, like, like anyone who has a bit of a following, you will hear people say, oh, yeah, that's really like one of your plays. That's a, that's a Pete Maliki play. So there's definitely a style that I tend to gravitate towards, but I do try to mix it up as much as possible as well.
2: Aside from your writing, you've also founded the Arts Business Academy. Um, and by the way, all of uh, the work of yours that, that we're referring to, uh, viewers and, and listeners who go onto our, our website will, um, onto our YouTube channel or onto the the, the podcast, uh, the web version of the podcast, will see links to all this in the description, Great, right. Um, you as so a fan of the Arts Business Academy, what do you think are, and I don't put you too much on the spot, what do you think are the, <laughs> the top three things that people entering the business side of the arts fail to consider when they do so?
0: I had to boil it down to a top three. Um, I think most people don't enter the business side, frankly. Mm. Um, th- there's, there's lots and lots of different ways to think about uh, the turning, turning what you do into a career. And, um, I suppose one of the most common shortfalls I see in creative artists is an inability to look into the, the, the mid to long-term. They tend to go, okay, I'm working on this. I'm doing a play. I'm doing a short film. I'm writing something. And my goal is to win an Oscar. And then there's just a very big gap (laughs) in between. And, um, it's very hard to, to bridge the gap from doing a play at the local theatre to being hugely successful. Mm. Um, so, so that's probably one thing that I think most people are lacking is just that, that vision or that, that roadmap, that concrete plan that takes you from where you are today with a series of small projects and steps and tasks to help you get towards what your goal is. Um, I I guess, I guess it's also the, the creative industries tend to attract a particular kind of person and the corporate world tends to attract a particular kind of person and they're quite vastly different. So you have more, whimsical, um, in the moment people in the creative world and that's fine. That's, that's not a criticism whatsoever. And in the corporate world, you have people who are a little bit more, um, uh, career minded and they're thinking about progression and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a a bit more of a mathematical way of thinking. Um, and, and actually that, that to me is a, it's a real problem for creatives because If all you're doing is focusing on the here and now and the experiential side of of being a creative, it's, it's very unlikely that with no strategy and with no roadmap that you will achieve those goals unless somebody takes you along for the ride. So actors, for example, most actors, they only think of going, doing their training, getting qualified getting an agent, going to auditions, winning auditions, getting that, um, you know, that walk-on role, getting more roles, getting to the point where they get a recurring role in a TV series or they land a support role in a feature film or an indie, indie feature or something like that, and, and hopefully progressing up along the way. So throughout that, they are relying on other people producing the work that they're, that they're in, which is fine. It's not, to, it's not to say that one shouldn't do that. Um, but Unfortunately, there's so much competition in the creative industries that uh, an, an incredibly small number of people will succeed by doing that. Because there's just, uh, I'd say maybe for every thousand actors, there's one permanent job. And thus, thus it becomes very, very difficult to sustain that. Um, when you, you know you're you're relying on other people to give you work, and you're doing short-term contracts all the time, your 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 work is one day to one week to maybe a couple of months or a few months for a, for a more complex feature, and then at the end of that you don't have a you don't have a job again. So it's like you're constantly going through the recruitment process, um, which is you, you know very psychologically draining. And so I think if you're relying on that infrastructure to take you from you know, the entry point of the industry to stardom is extraordinarily difficult thing. So, I'm not sure that's three things, but um, I can certainly, I could certainly land on the, the, the lack of strategy and the lack of a roadmap being, being one key thing. And, and look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another key thing. Just not really understanding how the professional world works. So many creatives they think they understand what professionalism is, but then they just make like misplay after misplay when it comes to their career. And, um, I I think getting professional experience is actually a wonderful thing to be able to work in a structure, in a hierarchy, as much as you might balk at that as a creative, you might think that that sounds like hell. You, you still work within structures and hierarchies. It just doesn't really feel like it when you come along and you're on a set and you're an actor and the director tells you what to do and then you go home. You you might not think, well, hang on, what's the back end of this? There are far more people working on this project than than come to the shoot, and without those people, that project goes nowhere. Like it doesn't matter if you have a brilliant director and a brilliant cast, you still need a producer who's putting it all together and someone to sell the show to a network or to find a way of distributing, distributing it to the masses. Um, so if you can't operate in such a way that is really professional and makes the people in the industry who have those professional skills and have been around for a while, want to work with you, then it's going to be a real struggle for you because you're probably going to find that, you're not getting rehired as much as you could be as if you had a really solid, concrete understanding of how those hierarchies and structures work. And then you understand how to bring your best work into the environment, but still staying within the framework of the people who are funding and, and essentially running a production. So, as an example, as an actor, you want to bring your your best work on onto on screen or stage, and you want to bring ideas to the table. But you have to be ready to hear the word no. And if your director or your producer doesn't like the way you're doing something, you have to adapt to that immediately, because otherwise, what tends to happen is you're doing something that is not really doesn't really match their vision and then you you have a bit of conflict, you don't tend to work well together, and then they just don't really want to work with you again because you're not delivering what they want. But if you can bring your ideas to the table and say, oh, what if I try it this way and they like it, then that's when you're really adding value, and that's where they will rehire you every time.
2: Agreed. Um, that's um, some, some very valuable advice in there, and... Uh... Um, I think for you, you you do artist coaching, don't you, on a business perspective as well? Which uh, do you do that internationally, or is that from an Australian perspective?
0: No, no. Look, I mean, you know, COVID land has has just made any kind of international um, training or coaching just easier and easier and easier. So I I, I do I do do that coaching service with anybody. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm really passionate about it. I, I do a lot of things, but I really love working with a smart client who's hardworking, someone who's really dedicated to making their career happen. And I tend to, going back to what I was saying earlier about, again, using actors as an example, um, sort of going to rehearsals, sorry, auditions, and and having producers and directors who've, put a project together give you a job and then you're doing the job i like to teach people how to create their own um pathway so okay what what are what are some other things that you can do um and and look by by all means do it in and around your regular auditions but how are some other ways that you could make a living or make some money doing what it is that you love doing doing acting what what Business? Could you set up that that has acting as a um, as a sort of central pillar, or a, a, how how else can you make money from your skill set? Because at the end of the day, I think this is a really important point for for any creative to think of. If you want to do creative work, because it gives you uh, it gives you joy, or, or it it it's, um, makes you feel like alive or any of those intrinsic reasons, which are just about fulfillment and happiness (laughs) And, 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 you know, telling stories and that kind of stuff, you can do it. You can do that stuff. It's great. You can do it in any setting, but when you make a decision that you want this to be your career, you have to think differently. You have to think, well, if it's my career, like what is, what is one of the most fundamental things to a career? It's an income so you have to start chasing money and chasing money doesn't always mean that you're doing the kinds of jobs or projects which are your passion but it's a real it's a real challenge because if you if you've decided you you want it to be a career then then actually that's what you're committing to do and i think you know, maybe this is point number three. A lot of people fail to appreciate that when they want it to be their career, now we're talking business. It, it, it's, not, it's, not about, it's not about the creativity anymore when it becomes a career because a career is not about being creative. A career is about making a living from the thing that you're doing. So when, I, when I, um, if I run a workshop, one of the first questions I'll ask people is, what, why do you do this? And they give me their reasons. And I say, well, can you do that as a hobby? Is there any reason why you can't get all of those intrinsic um, benefits You know, to, to feel the, the pleasure of it, the rush, telling stories, being in front of an audience, whatever it is that, that um, gets you off? Can you just do that in and around something else? Because the last thing I want to see people do is enter into probably the most competitive job market in the world and suffer. And as we know, very few creatives do become successful. Um, like I think it's actually a really poor life choice if you can just do it evenings and weekends and get all of those things out of it. Maybe when you when you hit because um, it's a very often young younger people who who are you know trying to do this. By the time you hit your mid thirties or your mid forties, you're not like completely broke and haven't really gone anywhere. And you're thinking, okay, now what do I do? I have to start again at the age of forty and try to I don't know maybe I want to have a family and buy a house. So I need to start earning money, but like, I've just been an actor all my life. So I don't really have, you know, a solid (laughs) professional background to, to, you know, get a sort of money job. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a challenging area. And um, you know, some people would feel that that's, that's, that's selling out or it's dirty in some way to be um, pursuing money as much as I'm emphasizing now. But again, I just think if you're making the choice that it's a career, then you really have to care about that.
2: And am sorry, just to, to, to clarify, when you're you referring to the um, you know, having a professional background as well, you're talking about sort of, you know, corporate professional background as opposed to creative professional background.
0: Well, yeah, like, yes and no. Because a professional background can, um, can incorporate a lot of things, right? Like you could, let's say it's film you could you could do any number of crew positions where they tend to be able to make a living out of it um but i suppose at the end of the day unless you are a a director of photography cinematographer or you know you want to do that like that is your passion maybe that's just a money job too but um no look I, i tend to i tend to mean more of a like sort of a business job because um I think it's a it's a fair comment to say there are very few people who would actually target retail or hospitality as a job that they want to do for life satisfaction. That tends to be a job that you do because you need a job. Um, whereas I think if you go into the professional world, yeah, of course, there's a lot of jobs which are very soulless and not fun at all. But um, there's also a lot of very fulfilling um, and meaningful roles um, in that sort of professional sector.
2: Um, and indeed, what, what many people um, who know your creative work won't necessarily realise is that you, which you worked quite a long time in a, in a government role uh, within the New South Wales Office. of <laughs> um, What, if anything, does having the inside track on, on public affairs <laughs> bring you in your work advising artists and arts administrators?
0: Probably very little, like from having worked in a couple of different government departments, I'd say there's probably very little due to the fact that it's government that I bring into my day-to-day or, or, or like, you know, the, the coaching or, or the creative world. But the fact that certainly in New South Wales government is run very much like a business. Um, and of course it's, it's, it's structured differently, you know, it, it answers to politicians who answer to the people and Sometimes you're doing activities that are guaranteed, you know, they're, they're not there to make money. A lot of government uh, activities are there to deliver a service, but it's the process of working through large complex projects, which really develops your skills in a way that you can take the transferable components out from the sort of business government, corporate sector and bring it into the creative industries and, um, be able to build some kind of, some level of success for yourself, um, from having that skill set. It's
2: yeah, it it, it is interesting, I I also worked in, I worked on the political side of, 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 um, uh, the, um, in Northern Ireland, I was a communications advisor to one of the parties of the Northern Ireland assembly, um, for some years and, um, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, certainly, there's a slight disconnect, I think, between um, the, the the political and civil service side of it, in that they <laughs> don't really talk to each other particularly well. Um, but uh, yeah, it uh, it gives you it certainly gives you a rich seam of material, I think,
0: <laughs> for, for use. As
2: well. um,
0: That's certainly true. <laughs> uh, your
2: your principal response to COVID has been to launch the Wild Monologue games. I say what a a pleasure it's been for me to be part of the judging panel for (laughs) what is quite a a, a sensational gathering of actors from right across the world, um, competing in several grueling rounds in a variety. (laughs) Um, Could you talk us through the process of founding the Games and and what it's involved for you, the judges and the contestants, as well as how and when we can see the global finals?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll start with the, the end, end part of that question. The Global Finals are the pinnacle of the, uh, uh, the event, the culmination of everything that's led to this point, as you could probably guess from Global Finals, uh, if the name doesn't give it away. Um, they are on the 17th and 18th of October, and then the following weekend, the 24th and the 25th. And in short, we have had 3,000 actors who registered for the event, we had a qualifying rounds where their submissions were judged. Then they performed in the regional live streams where people from within a country or for the, within a region all performed in the same show. And then audience and judges have put them through to the 75 performers you're going to see in the globals. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty exciting um, to be just like two and a half weeks out from that. Um, I'm really keen to see the performers and and the reaction that it's it's going to get because um, so far we've had really good really good eyeballs on on the event uh, really good view count. Um, but to answer the first part of your question, um, look, it, it it was definitely a response to COVID, but it was the basis was an idea I already had and had announced at a venue at at an event sorry, in the middle of February. Um, so COVID hit us in Australia mid-march early to mid-march um and and it's remarkable that the week before covid hit us it was just life as normal and then covid hit us and 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 then life was all weird as as everybody's experienced Um, so i'd announced a competition to find the world's best audition monologue and i was putting a prize on it i think it was i announced 500 dollars prize and it was going to be free entry and and just anyone in the world could submit um when COVID happened i saw that as actually a really good opportunity to evolve the event from just like a pretty lame competition into something that was far more participatory and far more um Uh, more eventy not a not a wonderful world word but i wanted it to feel more than just like oh we're just submitting a tape and then we get the results back i wanted it to be something that was more unifying and, and gave everybody the chance to do something you know like we're in COVID land there, there are very few opportunities right now. Film sets are not really operating. Some are, but at limited capacities. And and live production is shut down or, or, again, really hamstrung in most of the world. So there's just nothing going on. And I thought, well, this is actually, you know, we can use the, the powers of the internet, but instead of just having a single, like, do one thing and then, try to get an outcome turning it into an event with multiple stages and something that would make people feel more like they were participating in something meaningful and and not just entering a little competition um so so that was the genesis of world monologue games and um the, the process is like just a lot of logistics and admin, <laughs> I, you know, from having run festivals before. Yeah. There's just a, you just have to grind your way through a, a lot of, you know, setting up a website, opening entry forms. I use a, um, a CRM. So it manages all of the, the back ends processes you know form submissions and automation people getting emails when they sign up that kind of stuff there's a lot of work to be done there working with designers advertising the event Um, finding a panel of great judges like yourself, Patty, and, um, you know, (laughs) going through all of the processes, um, which for me are are pretty automatic because I've been doing this for a long time. But I I guess if you've never done something like this before, then there's a a heck of a lot of different things that you need to do and and quite a lot of learning. Um, But, like, I'm really pleased with how well-received World Monologue Games has been, but most particularly how much is meant to a lot of the performers like this is actually given them something to care about um, during a time when there's not much going on. So, so that's the thing I'm most pleased about.
2: Um, yes. Um, I mean, as I say, it has been a, it has been a real joy to, to, to go through um, a, a chunk of the entries um, uh, to, to help out with the, the, the process of, of, of putting a downflow um, viewers, of the followers of Dark Unicorn Productions will know that we, we did our own sort of smaller scale monologue uh, event uh, earlier in the year. Uh, it's been nice to see a small amount of crossover with that. There were some familiar faces that I saw coming Oh,
0: that's great.
2: Excellent. Um, yes. I think one of our hundreds is now one of your 70, however many for the global pilots. Oh, um, beautiful. So, um, yes, good to see that. Um, <laughs> what keeps you going in your life and work
0: i i have a goal um like i really enjoy the creative process going back to something i said earlier about like do you make it a career do do you not i do both i do certain creative things for fun and an outcome would be great you know like winning awards or or having large-scale distribution that kind of stuff would be great. But at the end of the day, I'm doing it for love. So I'm making an animation series and um, I've done the first episode, just found out this morning that I got uh, nominated uh, nomination for best screenplay for, for it, which was nice in, a, in an international festival. Um, and uh, I've, I've lined up a, a YouTube celebrity. I'm not sure if I, I were at the point where I can sort of name him in a public forum, but someone who has over a billion views to his name. Um, who, who's going to be doing the next episode of, of the series? Um, so, so, this is this is something that I just do because, you know, like I'm 38, and I really like the idea that when I turn 68, I can look back at my life so far and say, "Hey, I made an animation series. Like, I really love cartoons. I made I made cartoons. I made a series, not just like a single thing." Um, so. So that, that's something that I, I do for fun. But I'm, I'm also really driven to, um, to try to improve the experience for any creative worldwide who wants to try to make this a career. Um, so you've mentioned Arts Business Academy a couple of times. One of the projects that I worked on there is a rating system for career health. So, what it is, is as, a, as an artist, it doesn't matter what kind of artist you are, whether it's a singer, dancer, writer, actor, director, you name it, or where you are in the world, you fill out essentially a survey, just a, a bunch of questions that are about your career outcomes, so things like how many audience members have you had over your career? How big's your network? What's your income level? Because that's really important from a, for a career. If I haven't driven that um, <laughs> point home hard enough already, um, and and then all of your practices. So you know, like what are you, what's your planning, your goal setting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then it gives you a star rating out of five to show how well your career is going compared to the average artist. And that's really really valuable for a few reasons because. As, a, as an artist, we're, we're used to comparing ourselves to the peak of our discipline. So as an actor, you look at movie stars and that's what you think of as successful. But most actors don't become movie stars. And you can feel like a failure your whole life if you don't get into movies. But if you just do some walk-on roles from time to time, maybe you get a recurring role in a TV series, you make an income from teaching, you get to do some productions that are really fun. Like maybe you do some theater that, that you know, gives you that life satisfaction. You might actually be doing like way above the average. And I think that's a really powerful thing to know. Um, It also asks a whole bunch of questions. So it it gives you a a series of ideas of things that you can improve. So sometimes it's pretty intuitive whether you're going to get good points or or poor points for your response. You know, if you say, oh, well, I don't have any goals. Do you use smart goals? No, I don't. I don't even know what that is. Do you have a continued professional development plan? No. Do you do any marketing? No. You're going to know, oh, maybe these are things that I should do. So it's giving you a series of ideas. And it's also giving you a means to track your progress? Because it is so complex when you consider all of the variables, all of the factors that make up a career. How do you know how you're going year to year? Like you might think, oh, well, I didn't get as many jobs this year, so I must be going worse. But of course you're in a better position than you were five years ago, because now you have a whole network and you have people you know, with uh, real standing in the industry who like your work and want to work with you, but just because they didn't hire you this year doesn't mean they won't hire you next year. So for me, this, this creative career health check is a really, really powerful tool to give people some information and a little bit of support to help them improve their, um, you know, their careers effectively. And so I have this aim that throughout all of my activities, I'm, I'm sort of trying to funnel all of my activities to developing the maturity of the creative industries worldwide. So that when you make that decision that, that this is going to be Um, a career and not just a hobby that you have a bit of a roadmap of what you need to do now. So you go, okay, I'm going to do my health check and it's like, I'm going to start caring about business and I'm going to think about innovation. And do I want to set up a business? Do I want to, do I want to just participate in the, the infrastructure that already exists, going to auditions, doing that, knowing what the sort of statistics are like the chances of that working that's, that's my vision. So um, that, that keeps me very driven. And every day I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking, well, how do I, how do I get the health check to more people? How do, it's free, you know, like it's totally free to do. How do I get more people doing this? Because it's such a helpful tool. And what are some other ways that I can help develop the maturity of the creative sector?
2: Uh, what, I mean, you've talked about your overarching goals, but what, what's the next thing that you want to achieve?
0: Oh, so, so this is an interesting question because there, I, I'm I'm already in the middle of about six to ten <laughs> different projects, so a little bit a little bit hard for me to kind of reflexively say what's the what's the next thing. Um, look, I mean, World Monologue Games is 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 a is a great project. I'd really like to grow that. Um, in our first year, I think we've done remarkably well for a new event with three thousand participants and over fifty thousand views so far and we're only halfway through our season. Um, I'd really like to see that, um, you know, become two to 10 times bigger next year. So already I'm really pushing the the, um, the marketing. I've got on Twitter for the first time in my life. And, um, you know, I think that that's a really effective tool to reach a lot of people. I'd really like to see this become more significant um, to be able to put some really good prize money behind it. Like, I mean, imagine if you won, Five thousand dollars from just doing a monologue—that would be really cool. Like that, that that will drive a lot of performers to um, to participate. And then we're actually setting up a film festival. When I say we, I actually mean me. Like I do all of this stuff on my own, <laughs> but I'm used to communicating it as a we because I think um, I don't know. It just it, it seems a bit awkward to say I in in relation to an event. Um, But yeah, I'm setting up a a film festival for monologues as well, uh, coming up soon, um, which is going to be a little bit interesting. Um, Like you can only have one performer and it has to be shot in one continuous take. And there has to be at least some camera movement. So you can't just stick your, you know, your phone on your tripod and and do a monologue. Like it actually has to be a film. So, so that's going to be really fun. I think that's a, a bit of a unique format and, it's it's probably far easier to do during COVID land where you can you know do it relatively quickly um, rather than a short film which um, as we all know takes a lot of production effort to do well um, so so there are a couple of things that I, I'm I'm like immediately working on but next year I'm I'm actually running a future leaders course which is kind of um, it's a bit of an interesting structure. It would probably take me half an hour to really explain exactly what we're doing. But, but again, we, what I'm doing with this, um, but the, the thinking is basically to get a, a few uh, up and coming creative artists who really want to uh, focus on developing the business side and to have two really key aims everybody is that one they are targeting financial sustainability so whatever we do they need to build a strong business case they need to have an audience it needs to be something that perhaps not immediately but in the in the mid to long term will actually make some money and secondly contributes towards the development of the industry so i'm i'm looking to pull together a cohort of say 10 to 20 people and then what, what I'm ultimately trying to do is to create a new kind of business structure in the creative industries. Um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe humor me to, to to go into a little bit of detail about this. So, um, there, there there are a few problems in in the arts as we've we've already been talking about. But one is that you tend to be gathering and then disbanding all the time. So, you get, you know, we talked a lot about actors. I'll I'll stick with that theme. We, we, you get actors turning up, doing a film together. They're working with producers, directors, crew, other actors, you know, a whole raft of people. And then at the end of that project, all of those people disband and then they all start up new projects. And what happens is you're losing a lot of, uh, a lot of benefits of having figured out how to work with one another. And um, that I think that's something which is which makes the creative industries really really hard. Because you just, if you work in the office or corporate environment, you get better and better at working within your own team. A really mature team that's been together for two or three years, their their output will be so much better than a new team. You know, they'll they know their work area really well. They know each other's working styles and preferences, and they can just do a lot more. So um, that's something I'd really like to bring into the creative industries by pulling people together, who might work across several different projects, but they will work together as as a team. And they'll also have something which is often missing from creative projects, which is a level of management support above them. So, someone to um, basically, uh ask the hard questions to say, okay, you want to do this. Well, how's it going to work? Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? What's your business case? What's your audience? How are you going to get over this hurdle? You know, that's something that only comes with experience. Um, So being able to, to, to offer that. And then another great benefit is having 10 or 20 people together working across a series of projects means you can gain efficiencies of doing things like hiring a virtual assistant, So instead of everybody spending their whole lives doing admin kind of work or even marketing kind of work, because we know how hard you have to work to flog something when you're in a show or you've just done something, just to say, okay, we'll get a virtual assistant who can work across all of these projects. And if you need them, just schedule some work for them. and and other other efficiencies of having a group of people together like maybe you want to do headshots instead of each individual paying the um four five hundred australian dollars to to get a headshot you get a camera person in for half a day and to shoot everybody and then it ends up reducing that cost down to you know 50 to 100 bucks each because you've just made the process more efficient so i'm really that's that's the next kind of you know thing i'm really excited to work on to 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 build this to pull this together it, it will ultimately be a training course but it's it's creating a business structure around creative projects that i hope is going to really see these over the years progress towards being financially sustainable rather than just something that you know just being a struggle because it's always a struggle right and i'd like to try to bring that stability into into this industry uh
2: well that sounds like a a, a fascinating project and um we will be sure to um let people know as that is being rolled out um we always end with a quickfire section but before that the final question in our quickfire section talks about the hereafter but you've actually written a book about the afterlives promised by a variety of religions I have. Uh, which afterlife most appeals to
0: you? Oh, look, it's a while ago that I wrote this. So I have to, um, I have to search my, search my memory. Um, they all seem to be crap, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess you, you know, you, t- you, 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 Christian heaven seems pretty good, really. If you, if you don't. If you don't question it too hard, um, it, it was a really, it was a really fun, um, it was a really fun book to write. I'm, I'm not religious, but I, I haven't, I have kind of like, I, I just don't really care about religion. It's not, it's not important to me. I don't, I'm not like an angry atheist who wants to try to, you know, dis, disprove everybody or, or whatnot. Um, so it was just really fun to kind of explore these religious concepts in a lighthearted way. Um, rather than just in a, in a harsh, critical way. And so, you know, thinking about the idea of heaven, well, what if my idea of heaven conflicts with somebody else's idea of heaven? So, you know, I, I, I mean, my, my idea of heaven might be to have a, a harem of 20 beautiful women. And um, I'm not sure how each of those women might feel about their eternity being in my harem. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess... Um, <laughs> I guess whichever religion could deliver me that patty that that's probably the one I'll go with. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the um, <laughs> um other afterlives are available. Um, and, and that book is indeed available from com and, it and is. Um, we, we finish with every um, subject by um, every guest by uh, marking the passing in 2020 of James Lipton, the founder of Inside the Actors Studio, the uh, famous course and broadcast um, work uh, from New York, um, who would ask each of his guests the exact same 10 questions at the end of their interview. So we, we do that with, with them
0: um, all right, let's do it.
2: <laughs> what is your favorite word?
0: <sighs> I, I don't have one. I'm so sorry. I, 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 love, all, I love all words equally.
2: <laughs> well, you're the first out of 20 old guests so far who have, who have passed on that one. Then you see the next question is, what's your least favorite word?
0: Oh, all of the other ones. <laughs> what is it just, exc- just Sorry? What excites you? Uh, God, these are harder questions than they should be, Patty. They're so easy. Um what excites me? Um uh, I like ferrets. They're fun. <laughs> what what completely turns you off? Oh, um, Oh, geez. These are really hard questions, mate. Um, uh, I'm going to have to pass. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know.
2: What sound or noise do you love?
0: Sound or noise do I love? I love the sound of my partner's beautiful voice.
2: And what sound or noise do you hate?
0: when she gets angry at me.
2: (laughs) What's your favorite swear word?
0: I love, can I say it? It's, it's, I I love cunt. I just, I just love it. There's something like deeply satisfying about that word. you know what I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that down as my favorite word.
2: Okay, there we
0: are. Yeah, there you go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
0: I feel like, g- given that I, I, I have 11 current jobs, I feel like I'm already attempting the ones that I want to want to try. Um, yeah, nothing springs to mind again there, I hate to say it.
2: Um, is there a profession that you would
0: absolutely never in a million years want to do? Um, I get motion sickness really easily, so... Uh, Probably pilot, as 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 glorious as that sounds, I think it would be pretty sucky for me personally.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, it's probably best not to be throwing up over a lot of sensitive equipment. Um, mm. Now, as I said, you know we've already talked about the the, the life slightly. However, uh, if uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear said to you when you arrive?
0: Ah, oh, I mean, like just so many inappropriate and irreverent comments enter my head when you 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 say that. Um, I, I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe my my ego isn't as 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 great as it should be, and I don't feel the need for any special welcome. I'm just a dude. I'm happy with. Oh, hi, Pete. Welcome to heaven. <laughs>
2: most well, they <laughs> dodged ten questions. I think we've had the entire series, but oh, but nevertheless, Pete Maliki, thank you very much. For thank this.
0: you, Patty. I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit embarrassed about my performance on those ten questions. I I, I was not prepared for that. I need to go and do some media training, obviously. <laughs>
2: We are entering uh, what will be the next week will be the last week of the current season of Dark Unicorn in Conversation and we will be looking at other events for over the winter months. Our current uh, leaning is towards a series of ticketed online cabaret events under the working title Unicorns After Dark. Uh, If you have any suggestions for the types of cabaret or um, styles of performance that you might like to see over the course of the winter months, do let us know at info at darkunicorn.org or via any of our social media channels. Thank you once again for watching, and we will see you in the next edition of Dark Unicorn in Conversation. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Pete Malicki. The show was written, presented, and edited by Paddy Cooper. Title music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton. The show was executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Stanton.
0: COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you.